0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time 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 for for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicholas Smith of the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. And Klaus Badenhagen, who of course reports for German media. Hello, good to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing the KMT's sudden withdrawal from the Straits Forum in Sharman, Hong Kong's Secretary for Security calling for the return of five of its citizens who fled to Taiwan to seek political asylum. Ruffled Cross Strait Feathers as the Wild Bird Federation was removed from an international partnership. The Council of Agriculture considering banning the ownership, breeding and sale of pit bull terriers, talk of banning motorcycles and scooters from sidewalks, and plans for the island's banks to go bilingual ahead of a 2030 schedule. But we'll begin with yet another high level and I'm sure that some will say breakthrough visit as US Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment Keith Cratch arrived in Taiwan on Thursday evening. The US delegation touched down at Taipei's Sungshan Airport on a commercial charter flight where they were greeted by Deputy Foreign Minister Harry Tsung and American Institute in Taiwan Director Brent Christensen. The presidential office says the US delegation delegation's itinerary includes meeting with government officials and business people, as well as an official banquet, which will be hosted by President Tsai Ing-wen this evening. Cratch and other US officials are also slated to attend a memorial service for former President Li Dong-hui on Saturday, or tomorrow, that being Saturday. Although it's been reported that Cratch was scheduled to host the US-Taiwan Economic and Commercial Dialogue, the US State Department, though, is stressing that he's visiting Taiwan to attend Li's memorial service and is making no mention of said economic talks. Now, reports have claimed that those talks were cancelled because Washington was angry due to the leaking of information about Cratchy's trip and his itinerary. But the presidential office is dismissing those reports, saying that both sides are still preparing for the dialogue following its announcement on August 31st by the US State Department's Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Needless to say, though, Cratchy's visit has been condemned by China, with China's foreign ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin putting on the same old broken record this week and saying that Beijing is urging the U.S. to stop all forms of official exchanges with Taiwan as to avoid serious damage to China-U.S. relations and peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Beijing was also angered this week after the head of Taiwan's New York representative office held talks with the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Kelly Craft. Now, according to Craft, she met the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office director, James Lee, at an outdoor restaurant in Manhattan's east side. And it was the first meeting between a top Taiwan official and an American ambassador to the UN. Kraft is describing the meeting as historic and says it's the further step in the Trump administration's campaign to strengthen relations with the self-governing island that China claims as part of its territory. Now, China's UN mission is claiming that that luncheon meeting was a serious violation of a General Assembly resolution, the three US-China joint communiques and China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. So, Klaus will begin with Mr. Cratch coming over with a US delegation. Of course, this comes hot on the heels of a previous US delegation?
1: Well, it's the latest in a series of gestures the US government is making towards Taiwan, signaling closer cooperation, more recognition. I mean, and we had the Secretary of Health here, Azar, and now we have the uh, US Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, which isn't bad because um, more economic cooperation is always good. Taiwan is already the US 10th largest trading partner. I think the big question is people... Originally, we were hoping for this being a step closer to a free trade agreement between Taiwan and the U.S., but now that apparently they felt the need to to, um, deny that they want to do too much economic talk, um, I don't know, maybe is this kind of a backlash now? Is the free trade agreement as far away as it was before Tsai agreed to letting the U.S. pork in?
2: I, I wouldn't go that far. I, I mean, I think a free trade agreement isn't um, something that you can work out overnight. Um, I, I think, as you said, um, Cratchit's visit is is highly symbolic. Um, and it's another big show of support um, from the U.S. for Taiwan after Azar's, Azar's visit. Um, and it also kind of shows a kind of slow normalizing of high-level officials coming to Taiwan um so i think there's a lot of factors at play um in this one being the us election and and the trump administration's desire to to kind of talk tough on china and to show that um but i i also think that the the Scaling back perhaps of economic talks this time is just a sign of caution that they don't want to push Beijing too far too soon. It doesn't mean that it's not going to happen, um, but there's a lot of big meaty economic issues that are on the table with this economic dialogue. So they're not things that you can just um, make real progress on in a couple of days. You're talking about five G, um, semiconductors, also the diversification of of um, medical supply, the medical supply chain. All of these are very important issues that, uh, frankly, won't be um, undertaken by someone like Cratch. They'll be done more at the kind of um, a lower level of, of officials. But do you think, Klaus, that possibly plays into the opposition's hands here? Because, of
0: course, I mean, one of the newspapers today, which won't be named, but it's a well-read Chinese language newspaper here, basically ran a headline that screamed, Oh, the economic talks have disappeared.
1: Well, the opposition is basically framing this new round of um, economic cooperation with the US as Taiwan being blackmailed in order to let the rectopamine pork in, or the poisoned pork, as some people like to say. And there also were protesters at the Songshan airport, like um, waiting for the uh, US representative to come, with um, holding up boards saying yes to the US, no to recto pork quite a nice wording, I think. Um, but also, like, yes to the U.S., so they realize the danger of um, trying to appear too um, anti-American, which they also don't want to. Well, the thing is that free trade agreement with the U.S. is obviously the big goal that any Taiwanese administration would like to move forward to. But is it something that even if Trump administration would start doing the negotiations right now, is it something that could be finished? in in this term or would would it be something for a second trump term or would could it all be set back to zero in case uh, there's a biden presidency i mean what's what's the use pushing for the start of talks right now
2: well you have to start them at some point don't you I mean, why would you delay and delay? Like Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow, but the start of talks is at least but some I, progress. Yeah. I mean,
1: historically, if there's a change in power in the US, uh, have they like carried over the trade projects from the previous administrations or did they always start fresh?
2: Well, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you on that, but I think that it's a bit of a defeatist attitude not to start at all. Um, I mean, once you start the ball rolling, it's harder to stop it um and and it just seems like a bit of a you know as as gavin mentioned this this newspaper report it seems a bit of an immature view really to to think that oh economic talks are now dead in the water when they haven't even begun um and with these with all of these issues you just have to have a bit more patience because these aren't these aren't um uh subjects that you can just simply resolve um i mean pork aside that's obviously a very controversial one um but even if the administration's changed, then, you know, often the the, the diplomats don't. Um, and the officials who are kind of doing the really nitty gritty negotiations don't. They might be given a change of direction. But I can't really see um, why there would be a sudden turnaround in a, in a Biden administration either. I mean, there may be. We can't predict that. But... I, I just don't see the point in hanging around to wait and see what happens in a few months' time. And, of course,
1: Klaus,
0: the New York
2: luncheon. Yeah. You weren't inviting... Of Manhattan I mean,
0: low, an, not bad, a, An outdoor lower Manhattan restaurant.
1: Yeah. Um, what I found interesting was um, a statement by the U.S. ambassador to, to the UN, Kelly Craft. She said that um, we really are pushing for them to back into the un or have a role at the who um that's something i haven't heard from a u.s diplomat recently um pushing for taiwan to get back into the un so that sounds like a new quality to me i mean she is the un ambassador so she must have been aware of what she said there obviously lunch was good i hope so yeah
2: yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a great gesture, but but good luck with with that move as well. I mean, I think um, the U.S., um, UK, other European nations are belatedly realizing that that um, they're not the most influential blocs at the United Nations. Um, that that China has been working very hard behind the scenes to to shore up its own diplomatic allies, and it would be very hard to get. Um, you know, much that they would like to see it. We would all like to see Taiwan um, having more of a presence at the United Nations. It, it's going to be very, very hard to push that through. Yeah, but
1: still, in 2008, uh, the Chen administration had a referendum in Taiwan with the goal of applying to enter the UN under the name of Taiwan. And that was opposed by the White House back then. And they made really clear that they were not very happy about this development. And now the American UN ambassador says we would like to we are pushing for them to be back into the UN. So interesting. Quite a change here.
2: I wonder who pay for lunch. Uh, Your guess is as good as mine. There you go. Maybe they split
0: the bill. That's a possibility. Yes, it could have done, couldn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, moving on, the KMT on Monday of this week announced that it will not be sending any official delegation to this weekend's Straits Forum in Shaman, due to what the party described as an inappropriate comment by a Chinese state-owned broadcaster. Now, according to KMT Culture and Communications Committee Chairwoman Alicia Wong, the overall atmosphere is now unfit for cross strait dialogue and the party will no longer participate in the forum as a political political party. Wang also said that the cross-strait situation is complicated and any inappropriate comments or actions can seriously harm the hard-earned goodwill and mutual trust across the Taiwan Strait. Now the boycott came after a China central television host claimed that former legislative speaker Wang Jinping, who of course we talked about last week as in heading the KMT delegation, Well, the central television host basically said Wang was going to China to sue for peace. So, Klaus, obviously, that's not a very good start, is it, really? You know, your bloke's coming to visit and you're saying he's coming here to plead for peace.
1: Well, you could say it's a good start because the KMT apparently has read the public opinion in Taiwan and decided that um, it would not not be perceived very positively by the Taiwanese public if they send a delegation over there right now in this political environment. So, yeah... remains to be seen who is going now in a private capacity, which KMT politicians would still find it appropriate to participate in that in that event.
0: Several did go, as well as men, several members of the new party and several business yeah, people.
1: Yeah, okay, so when they come back, I think they will need to go through quarantine, right?
0: That's only two days, apparently.
1: Only two days quarantine? Yeah, they, they flew out on the 16th, and
0: they were going to spend two days in quarantine, and then go to the event.
1: Yeah, but when they come back to Taiwan, they need to go into quarantine
0: hopefully for 14 days yeah none of that two days no no no
2: um yeah i mean it's it's a tricky one isn't it i mean i'm i'm all for dialogue but i think you really have to read the room as well and you have to read the current political situation um and it seems that even the kmt have realized that that you have to push back as well when you have um the other side saying things like begging for peace you can't really um accept that kind of rhetoric and and um hope to achieve something And, and the big question is you know what what do they hope to achieve at these kind of forums Um, and you have to be very careful as well um, with these kind of negotiations when they are not the current government of the day Um, it's a very delicate situation in the cross strait um, across the straits just now Um, and they have to be very careful not to overstep and and the KMT haven't exactly been very clear on their own cross-strait policy um, for a while and and the party seems to be in in quite a bit of disarray really so I think they have to be very careful about what kind of messages they are putting out and, and want to put out.
0: But what about the China Central Television host? I mean, do you think he, he made this comment deliberately or he was having a bit of a laugh with the people he worked with or it was a complete faux pas?
2: Well, I haven't seen an apology or a retraction. And, and you know, when it comes to um, Chinese state media, then I don't think people generally go rogue um, you know, the the things that they say and report I I think, you know, they might not be state mandated but they certainly wouldn't cross certain boundaries and, and um if they do I, I think they would be reprimanded. So um I maybe he's he made a casual quip. Um it sounds more like a a, a message to me.
1: Well, as far as I know, the um thing that made people in Taiwan angry was like a caption, like a writing inserted into the TV frame I, it's hard to say how, how Chinese um, state TV works, who is responsible if they really need to have every little word that they put on the screen like um, okayed by the ones in power but um,
2: I mean I think they know the the parameters within which they have to operate, it's not that every word is scripted by by the government but um they certainly know the the bounds that they have to remain within and what's permissible to say, and and I presume that these uh, journalists also have their own sources that they are picking up on on the messaging that they are also getting from from state officials. Well, I so, guess
1: I guess the fact that all the videos of this report seem to have vanished from the official video platforms maybe shows that somebody came to the conclusion that, that this was not the best move or the best phrasing to make. There
0: and of course it was aimed at Wang Jingping, who is not
1: from a mainland family. Yeah, he's not one of those KMT politicians who have a long history of um, fostering closer relations with the Communist Party, right? I mean, he's a native Taiwanese. He does not belong to the mainlander faction in the KMT, and the fact that he had did not have the sunflower protesters thrown out of parliament in 2014, and he's an old adversary of Ma Ying-jeou, um, does not really make him the most likely person to, to send to a meeting like this. I would have expected they sent someone like Hong Shouju, like last year or maybe um, Lian Zhan, the former vice president. People have a long history of, of engaging with um, with um, KM, uh, with um, mainland Chinese organizations.
0: But do you think the, the television host would have said the same thing had Lian Zhan been going or do you think maybe it was a dig at the KMTs sending Wang Jingping?
1: That's speculation right now. I don't know.
0: Anyway, the saga of five Hong Kong citizens who fled the city by boat and were picked up by Taiwan's Coast Guard in waters near the Dongsha Islands in late July was back in the news this week when Hong Kong's Secretary for Security called on the Tsai administration to return the five citizens. Saying at least two of them are facing rioting charges related to anti-government protests in the city last year. Now the five are reportedly being held in Kaohsiung and are allegedly seeking political asylum here from Taiwan about the five. However, local journalist Ed Jong, who said that he was one of the people who tried to help them enter Taiwan, is claiming that the Hong Kongers have also been unable to contact their families or lawyers since being picked up by the Coast Guard Patrol. Now, the mainland Affairs Council is refusing to comment on the reports concerning the five Hong Kongers, but Premier Su-Jung Chung, while refusing to comment on the case also, has said that the government hopes to provide people in need with substantial assistance. So, Klaus, five Hong Kongers coming here seeking asylum, seem to have just disappeared off the radar.
1: I think the Taiwanese government cannot be interested in giving anyone the impression that people are getting disappeared here. So that's really curious. And I'm expecting them to clear up uh, pretty soon where these people are right now and what's their status. I also don't think they will extradite them back to Hong Kong just because the Hong Kong government says so, because they're supposed to have broken some laws there. If Taiwan did that, then they could kiss all their soft power in respect to Hong Kong goodbye. So um, I, what I find interesting is that these five people apparently made their way to Taiwan via Prata's Island in the South China Sea. So they did not get on a boat and come directly to Taiwan. Apparently they were picked up on Prata's, Dongsha Island, right? Apparently mm. the boat ran out of fuel. Well, then it must have been quite a coincidence that they ended up right on that island because it's only less than two square kilometers big and a uh, little way off the coast but it's, it's like halfway between Hong Kong and Taiwan and it's one of the very very few strongholds the Taiwanese government has in the South China Sea together with the um, Taiping Itoaba Island and the Spratlys way down south and right now this is a kind of a flashpoint because the um, Chinese army apparently has been talking about doing military exercises right across from or around those islands and taiwan has strengthened their troops there they sent um, uh, marines there and stationed them there before that it was only coast guard so this is not an area where the taiwanese government would want to have anyone lurking around or coming ashore that who hasn't been invited there so i'm pretty sure they do not want to encourage refugees from Hong Kong to try to make their way to Prata's islands now. So my guess is that's one reason why they kept really quiet about these cases.
2: I mean, I think it's a bit rich of uh, the Hong Kong authorities to to give Taiwan a hard time when they're basically ignoring the other twelve Hong Kongers who are uh, who really don't have legal access or contact with their families in Shenzhen. Um, it's very hypocritical, and, and I certainly don't see Taiwan um, uh, caving in to demands to send them back, especially as. as um, uh, there isn't an extradition treaty between um, Hong Kong and Taiwan. And that's, you know, where the entire protest movement um, emerged from last year. Um it- Taiwan, it's, it's a complicated situation for Taiwan. I, I think the authorities do need to be a bit more upfront about what's happening with these five Hong Kongers and, you know, why they are being detained. I, I, I mean, I've, I've read um, conflicting reports about whether they have access to um, uh, lawyers or have been in touch with their families. I, I find it very hard to believe that they wouldn't have access to lawyers. Um, but But Taiwan's problem is that it doesn't have a formal asylum policy um so for people who want to move here from hong kong who are students or who have a genuine work reason then it's much easier i mean the pandemic complicates everything but but then you have a whole host of of young people who uh, you know believe and and seem to be under genuine threat from the new national security law in Hong Kong who don't have the option to come to Taiwan because there isn't um, a proper asylum procedure. And so that's why they are then taking to these very dangerous sea routes um, and and trying to, to get here through less legal means because they're, they're, they're so desperate. And uh, from my understanding of the situation, situation we, we looked at it in... Um, June and we spoke to a lot of the um non-state actors who were involved in helping Hong Kongers the churches and the the human rights groups and from my understanding um at that time um there was a certain um turning of a blind eye towards people who got here under less legal means it wasn't encouraged but um it it it's definitely something that Taiwan doesn't want to um, advertise that people are coming here and and seeking asylum. Um, I think my impression is that the authorities want to help, but that they don't want to create trouble um, with China over this either. Um, so they're in a they're in a very difficult position, but they do need to find some way to help people. Legally as well, genuine asylum seekers.
0: I mean, Klaus, to use a 1980s phrase from Hong Kong, do you see an abundance of boat people coming here?
2: Well,
1: as long as most people still know that there is not a clear pathway to asylum in Taiwan and um, you don't have a lot of success st- stories that are being told and and, and spread, um, I don't see that happening right now. Also, the, the distance... If you want to take a boat from Hong Kong to Taiwan or to Pratas Island, for that matter, you still have to move a really long way along the Chinese coast. And I think um, if China becomes aware of this becoming some kind of a mass movement, they will very quickly be able to put an end to that.
2: Well, they already have put an end to it. I mean, that's why 12 Hong Kongers were caught um, a, a few weeks ago. And so a lot of these sea routes have been used quietly but Chinese state media started to um, publish the routes the Chinese Coast Guard has been stepping up its patrols Um, I I just think the the net is really closing in and all these dissidents who now have no way to get out of Hong Kong Um, so I don't I don't envisage um, a mass flow of boats coming over at all but there need to be other ways to help people
0: Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week and there were some ruffled cross-strait feathers as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs blamed China after a local bird conservation group was stripped of an international partnership. Now, ministry spokeswoman Joanne Oh is describing the removal of the Taipei-based Chinese Wild Bird Federation partnership with BirdLife International as being China's interfering in the completely apolitical field of conservation. Now, the bird conservation group was in fact removed from the partnership on September the 7th and it told the press that Basically, it had been asked to change its name and sign a document formally committing not to promote or advocate the legitimacy of the Republic of China or the independence of Taiwan from China prior to its removal. Now, the Wild Bird Federation also, interestingly enough, said that it was asked to change its English name three times at the request of BirdLife International since 1988. So, Nicola, of course, you took an interest in this story and brought it to the attention of all those telegraph readers.
2: Yes our readers love birds Um, yeah I mean it's the the story is pretty it's unbelievable and yet believable just in the current atmosphere I mean that a bird conservation group could be drawn into geopolitics is is really quite incredible and pathetic but um, you know it's just part of the, the, the bigger picture of um, Taiwan's international identity just being completely squeezed out of of the global arena. It doesn't matter, like if it's bird conservation or if it's you know in, in the United Nations or just in in any way, um, it, it's this kind of uh, Chinese effort to just deny Taiwan's existence. Um, and it just fits into that bigger part of it. And it's it's very sad that that um, a, a kind of well respected conservation group in Taiwan should suffer because of it and it's very disappointing that an international organization like BirdLife International would would also be drawn into and play these games. We don't know the kind of, they haven't um, explicitly stated the reasons for demanding um, that the group sign this pledge. So we don't know what kind of pressure they were under, whether it was self-inflicted or whether it actually came from some form of Chinese officials or some um, entities with um, links to Chinese funding. We just, we don't know because they won't be upfront about it, but it, it is a ridiculous situation. So, Klaus, do you think some foul play was afoot? Well, from the Chinese
1: perspective, it was no foul play. It was business as usual. I mean, um, what is um, peculiar to me is this reminds me of news you had like back in 2008, 2009, 2010, be- before China turned openly hostile towards Taiwan, when there were news like the um, Taiwanese fireman's marching band has been kicked out of the International Firemen's Music Union or some... Um, Taiwanese um, student sports athletes had their flag ripped from their hands at some tournament in some other country. Like those little little um, events that already made clear what, what China was all about. Nowadays, you have Chinese fighter jets crossing the, the median line and you have military maneuvers on the other side of Taiwan. So um, I would have thought they would have moved on by now and not... Um, keep themselves busy with small fish like these, but apparently some low- to medium-ranking officials somewhere saw a chance to score some brownie points here by going after the Taiwanese Wild Bird Federation.
0: Targeting birdwatchers. That's yeah. just damn rude, if That's you just ask me.
2: Low. That's that low. Is low. That
1: really is low.
0: They'll be targeting train but spotters I tell you next. what,
2: though, birdwatchers are a pretty passionate bunch. They are angry about it, and they are campaigning against this. So, so i mean
1: how bird life is really big in the u k as an organization
2: yeah uh, yeah, i mean well, we also have the r s p b um which is bigger the Royal society for um protection prevention birds, yeah, yeah protection of birds um <laughs> sorry, <laughs> i'm forgetting what it stands for, but um yeah, so that's bigger, but i mean from what i've heard and i've i've only heard speculation on this um um Nothing could be proven. We we went to um, Birdlife International and we asked them a lot of questions on this, and and they took a day to think about it and then came back and said, actually, we're not going to comment um, on private discussions between us and our partners. Um, so they they wouldn't be upfront about the pressures they were under. What what we've heard from people in the bird world um, is that they do allegedly want to expand more into China. Um, and so maybe they maybe they just made a, a a calculation that that that's you know they would rather invest more in, in trying to push into China where they they don't have a presence just now they're they've, they've got a an office a partner in Hong Kong, um, but you know and, and let Taiwan go we 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 just don't know but it's it's a it's a real shame that um, Taiwan has has done. Amazing work in conservation, and that that is being now kind of dismissed really internationally. When you know they've done a lot on um, protecting endangered seabirds, um, like Chinese um, crusted tern, or they've done a lot about protecting wetlands, they do a lot of educational stuff, um, teaching people more about conservation. So, you know, they've really been a leader in Asia, and to see them now disrespected like this is, is just very sad.
0: Anyway, staying with basically, well, animals anyway. The Council of Agriculture on Wednesday said that it's considering banning the ownership, breeding and sale of pit bull terriers. Now, the Council's Department of Animal Industry said the move comes amid a recent spate of attacks on other dogs by said pit bulls. Now, according to the Department's Deputy Director, Zhang Chuan, his office has been holding talks on the possible ban with pet industry representatives and local governments. Now, the policy is likely to see a ban on the import, export and ownership and breeding of pit bull terriers, and Officials say it could be introduced later this month at the earliest. However, the Council of Agriculture is stressing that people who currently own pit bulls will be able to keep their dogs, but it will be mandatory to register them with their local governments. So, Klaus, do you own a pit bull?
1: Not recently, No.
0: You have owned a pit bull. <laughs> I,
1: I, I have um, had all kinds of dogs in my family over the years, but no, um, never had pit bull. Although we had a German Terrier, who also tend to be on the aggressive side.
0: We're digressing here. So pit bulls, do you think we should ban pit bulls, Klaus?
1: Um, well, there are officially apparently six types of dogs in Taiwan that are um, classified as being aggressive and that are supposed to not be let off the leash and only be walked by adults, like pit bulls, um, being one of them I guess so it's regrettable that there was this incident where one pit bull was running around and uh, maimed a poodle um, to, to single out this one dog race right now and like ban them I don't know if that's the the reaction that's um, called for right now I mean there's still other kinds of aggressive dogs here and um, would you go after all of them what do you do with those when you have a dog so my guess is as often, it's it's more about enforcement of the existing rules and uh, maybe education of the dog owners about how potentially dangerous the animal can actually be than just like a knee jerk reaction of, OK, let's ban this kind of dog here and not have it anymore.
0: Nicola, of course, fighting dogs, basically, they were originally bred in our neck of the woods.
2: Yeah. And they've also been banned as well. I mean, they are like banned all over the world. And there, there's a reason for that, because, you know, I, I don't. I don't personally understand why people need to own a fighting dog. Um, you know, an unpredictable, aggressive dog. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I would be in favour of a ban. Um, but at the very least, um, I think you as an owner, you should have an, a licence or you should have to be able to prove that you're capable of handling a dog like that. You know, not just anyone should be allowed to have a pit bull. Um, because, you know, there have been horrible stories of how, this time it was a poodle, um, but there's been horrible stories. Certainly there were many in the UK before more stringent measures were taken of small children being attacked. Um, and that's the kind of scenario you really want to, to avoid. It's horrific. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that the government should be t- tightening the rules on, on the ownership and breeding of pitbulls.
1: Are any dog breeds banned in Germany? I should... I should read up on that. What I know is that some years ago, they made it um, obligatory to have like, uh, no matter what kind of dog you have, you have to prove that you know how to take care of a dog, like a dog owner's license for everyone. I'm pretty sure there are um, limits and special regulations about dangerous kinds of dogs like pit bulls. Yeah. Apparently, there's 1,000 pit bulls being held in Taiwan according to the National Pet Registry, which is quite a lot. I've I've never seen them around. I guess they're mostly kept in cages somewhere. Lucky you. Yeah, <laughs> probably.
2: <laughs> one thousand. Does that seem like a large number, Nicola, 1,000? Uh, I don't really know. I'm not very um, hot on my pit bull statistics around the world. Um, it, it, um, it surprises me um, that there are that so, many. I've never seen them around either. So
1: what happened in the UK after they were banned? If you, if you already had one, did you have to give it up? Were they put down or
2: no we didn't have a mass cull of them um I, there was just there were just a number of high profile um attacks on small children um and it just became less acceptable to to um own aggressive dogs um and i i think also there was some european legislation i seem to recall something going through in, in the european parliament as well um But, you know, I just think the general point is that anyone who who seeks to own a dog like this should really be licensed and, and very well trained in how to handle them.
0: And there was good news for pedestrians this week as Transport Minister Lin Jia Long on Wednesday announced that government agencies are slated to hold talks regarding the possible removal of all motorcycle parking spaces from pedestrian sidewalks. Now the talks come as the government is proposing amendments to the notes to the design standards of urban roads and accessory work. Now that amendment was proposed by the Ministry of the Interior in an effort to revise road design standards that will ensure that sidewalks are designated pedestrian-only areas that are safe to walk on. So, Klaus, there you go.
1: Motorbikes off sidewalks. Yeah, well, then they should uh, relocate all those motorcycle parking spaces that are only reachable by going via the sidewalk, right?
0: That's gonna—that's the whole plan <laughs> to remove all the parking spaces.
1: Well, I don't—I don't ride a motorbike myself. I also don't drive a car here, but I know people who do, and they—the the motorcycle community apparently feels like they are being discriminated here because um, all this space is given to cars, which need a lot more space in comparison, and now they even want to take their their parking spots away, which are sometimes close to MRT stations. So they say, if I can't park my scooter near the MRT station, I will just drive the scooter to go all the way to work, which kind of defeats the purpose as well. So what's the big strategy behind this here?
0: And apparently, Nicola, like I said, the motorcycle fraternity has opposition this and very angry and also local governments have also questioned it saying well if you want to remove all the motorcycle parking spaces from the sidewalks
2: there needs to be more room on roads for motorcycle parking spaces I don't understand why you have to move the parking why do you have to abolish the parking spaces because they're on the pavement no but you can just access those parking spaces from the road that's a problem like i i often i see motorcyclists access those spaces from the the pavement when they could very easily just drive in from the road. So can't you well, some, you don't need to take them, the space away.
1: Some of them are on on top of the curbs so you somehow need to get to the spaces, so from just the so other just side. change
2: that then. Yeah. I mean, don't take away the parking spaces. That doesn't make any sense at all because you still need parking spaces. You know, problem solved is, it's surely not that hard. But I like, I I would love to see um, motorcycles stay off the pavement. I just think it's so dangerous, and I've seen so many people not just amble along to a parking space, but drive really fast on the pavement and it almost seems like pedestrians in Taiwan have zero rights on the road um, and this is part of it.
1: What people say, Taiwan is the country where the pedestrians walk on the road and the scooters drive on the <laughs> pavement. So, um, But uh, seriously, I, I recently read that the Taipei City government has a goal of um, redesigning all streets that are at least 30 meters wide and they all are supposed to get bike lanes. So I think this would be a great chance to also redesign the way scooter parking and the distribution of space between cars and scooters and all that is reorganized. So I think there will be some major construction still going on in Taiwan, so they still have a chance to, to find better solutions for all those roads.
0: Right, and before we go this week, there's been renewed talk of Taiwan becoming a regional financial hub. And while President Tsai Ing-wen has been talking up the need to liberalise banking and investment regulations to achieve this, another major step towards the goal is, of course, language. And that, of course, is tied to the government's bilingual nation 2030 policy. And this week, Financial Supervisory Commission Chairman Huang Tianmu was busy inspecting domestic banks to check on their progress in becoming able to assist customers in the English language.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, Starbucks is bilingual here, so I, I, I'm sure banks can do it as well. I I, I mean, I always feel a bit guilty um, pushing um, the kind of wider spread of English at the same time. Um, it, it would really help Taiwan to bring it more into the international space and, and um, just make it more accessible internationally. And I, I, I just don't see any disadvantages for Taiwan in having more English in the banking sector. Especially now that you have, you know, so many doubts hanging over Hong Kong and and the financial sector there, and whether they might start to relocate.
1: I think, especially in the banking sector, what m- many people are complaining about, not only English-speaking foreigners, is like the amount of red tape they need to go through, like when mm. you want to open an-, an account or when you want to exchange some money. So, if this would a reason to just get rid of some of those regulations or make them a little less rigid, um, then there would not be a need to translate all these forms uh, anymore. Maybe also people are still asking around when they want to open a bank account, which bank has an English online banking system. So I also think focusing on the websites of banks would probably be have even a greater effect than like um, having the, the bank tellers take English classes right now.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good idea, you know, have a combination of both, really, because, you know, I I just try to avoid banking here. I just find it so incredibly complicated. And, you know, thankfully, I'm able to do that. But Mm. um, if you want to attract more um, investment to Taiwan or... um, uh, skilled workers or you know all these things that the government wants today um, they definitely have to make the banking sector a bit more simplified and a bit more um, user friendly and whether that's you know having more people speak English or whether it's just you know better online bank- banking I think it needs to be kind of all of the above What about
0: German? Should banks speak German Klaus?
1: <laughs> of course I'm all for that. Let's start right now lots of job opportunities for German teachers well, There you go. Bring them in
0: Anyway, that's all. We'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And Klaus Badenhagen. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week Podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows.